right. Well, hey, um, we're going to jump back into our series, obviously, on um, Exodus and, and the, the Ten Commandments. And so if you have your Bible, um, you can open it to Exodus 20 if you'd like to, but it's a very short verse. Um, in fact, actually, I'd probably point you more to Genesis 1. And so honestly, if you open up your Bible, go ahead and open to Genesis 1. I will, we'll get there in just a minute. But if you were to open your Bible to Exodus 20:13, you would see perhaps one of the, the, the shortest commands um, in the Decalogue here, and it simply says this. It says, "You shall not murder. You shall not murder." And, and sometimes we come to church and we kind of think to ourselves, "You know who really needs a sermon?" You know who this sermon's really for? And you're like, you start texting people. Hopefully you don't have friends who really need the sermon. But there, there is an element of, you know, why are we talking about this? You shall not murder. Haven't we covered this? Isn't there this element of like societal ethics, not only the Christian ethic, but morality in society? Doesn't this go better? Because we all in our hearts and our guts know that it's better when people don't go around murdering one another, Right? Right, that there's this element that we just know that intrinsically. And so it's like, why are we talking about this in this day and age? Well, as you know, the world needs this. The world needs this reminder. In fact, if you are a student of history, if, if you know kind of how wars have developed over the years, there's, uh, the, the value of life is, is very little when it comes to thinking about this command. In fact, if you go back just 300 years uh, to the 1700s in America, uh, some of you guys watched Hamilton over COVID, right? That was a big deal uh, during that time. And if you watched Hamilton, our founding fathers, apparently when, they was, when there was beef, when there was conflict in their life, hey, this person called my dad a bad name, they would go out into a field, they'd grab two pistols, they'd stand back to back, and they'd murder one another. That's, that's crazy, right? Think about that. That was like 300 years ago. These are civilized people or whatever. And so I guess whoever didn't get murdered, their point was stronger and their conflict was over. But this is, this is how much of the world thinks about how we deal with, with people and that interaction. And so it may seem straightforward, but the reality is, is we need this commandment. And as we jump into this a little bit further, you'll see there's much more to this. The, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, it boils down in the Hebrew to two words, never murder. Very simple, never murder. And you see in Genesis 9, 6, the consequence for those who break the sixth commandment. Genesis 9, 6 says this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is a serious thing. This is a very serious command that God says directly, hey, if you take the life unjustly of someone else, then your life is, is now at risk for being taken as well. And so it, it, it doesn't really quite add up sometimes. Maybe we're thinking about a verse like that. It's like, well, if you murder someone, then you ought to be killed. How does that add up? Is that like two wrongs make a right? And really it boils down to an understanding of murder versus killing. And that's something I just want to talk about for a few minutes, okay? In fact, this kind of little subtopic in this sermon could be expanded upon a whole bunch. Really, it could be. It could be talked about for, for, for years and years, and it really has been. This book's written on what justifies somebody in killing. But I just want to talk about this for a minute as we understand the heart of this commandment. So let me just say, I'm not going to do it justice. There's going to be an element that will be kind of a flyover. But here's what the sixth command, um, I believe, is, is talking about. It's talking about, obviously, murder and cold blood, premeditated, the unjust taking of someone else's life. It's talking about euthanasia. It's talking about suicide. It's talking about abortion. 
It's talking about negligible uh, homicide where somebody uh, gets in their car drunk and, and they take someone's life in an accident. I think these are the kinds of things the Sixth Command addresses directly. And, and as we talk about these things, maybe you can think of other examples, but these are the kind of things as we think about the last few hundred years as theologians have thought through the idea of murder versus killing, this is what the Sixth Command is dealing with. Here's what I, I, I think the Sixth Command is not addressing directly. Is, is legal killing. Okay, so this is a little bit of a hot topic, and this is, these are things that maybe you disagree with even a little bit or have different, um, different opinions on. That's okay. We're not necessarily saying this is right or this is wrong in terms of it, but, but here's what we're kind of not talking about is killing in self-defense. Someone comes into your home, and they, they mean to do you and your family harm, and that person dies. There's a sense of principle throughout Scripture that that, that killing of that person is not murder. Uh, capital punishment. Again, very kind of controversial, but there's a sense of, hey, if, if, uh, if someone uh, dies as a result of being a murderer, we see in Scripture that that is not considered murder. Wartime killings. When a soldier goes out in a battlefield and shoots and kills another soldier, that is not considered murder. Now, now we're not going to spend too much time here, but I, I would say that if you want to read up on this, I would encourage you to do so. St. Augustine actually talks a lot about uh, this, this idea of just war theory, which is very helpful here because just war theory really gets to this idea that, that killing is, is uh, considered morally acceptable when the result is peace. When the result, uh, uh, it, it results in people who are innocent being protected from, from more violence. And, and again, this, all these examples, especially what, what is not considered murder, really boils down to there's a difference between human implementation of these things, of, of self-defense, of capital punishment, uh, of, of wartime killing, versus the biblical principle. And so I realized that all these things are implemented by flawed human beings who make mistakes, who don't have all the information. But in terms of the biblical principle, this is how we define murder versus killing. So again, we can talk more about this. It's still tragic. It's still tragic when people die, when somebody on death row loses their life. It's still tragic. It is, it is sad and tragic when a soldier dies, but it's not murder according to scripture. Now let's, let's get to the heart of what we're going this morning in terms of the heart of this command, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And I believe the understanding of the heart of this commandment really is seen if you kind of flip the words around a little bit. In fact, you can kind of do this with all the commandments. Last week we talked about you shall honor your father and mother. So the kind of the flip side of that command would be like, hey, don't treat mom and dad like dirt, right? But that doesn't sound as nice and poetic, so you shall not murder kind of want out. So this week as we think about you shall not kill, our big idea, the thing that I want you to embrace this morning as we understand this commandment is, is this, we must value human life. That is really the heart behind the sixth commandment. We must value human life. And so I, I want to ask you, is this true of you this morning? So maybe you're not a murderer, but do you value human life? Do you see all life as sacred and important? Do you value it? And so I want to kind of tackle this first point that's more theologically setting up how we understand this. Number, po- number one is this, we value human life because God created us in his image, God created us in his image. So if you have your Bibles already open there, Genesis 1, verse 20, I want you to see how God created in the order of creation. 
and how as we consider the value of human life, it really doesn't depend on our own standard. It depends on how God views us in his order of creation here. So verse 20, let's start there. And I want to read kind of the rest of this section. Genesis 1, verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning and the fifth, the fifth day. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Let's get down to verse 26 here. And in verse 26, we kind of see this shift that I want you to notice. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. A couple of things to note here in these, uh, these, these five or seven verses here. There's the sense as God is creating uh, the world. God is creating his creation. Uh, he, he has this shift that occurs when he's creating um, animals and sea creatures and plants and living things. And then when we see God create human beings, things change a little bit. In fact, you can kind of even see it in verse 24 and verse 20. So it says, let the water swarm. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Now, there's, there's probably elements of kind of word study here that would be important for, for us. However, as, as we just look at the text, it, it looks like God is allowing the earth's collaboration in terms of this creation. And so as, as, when we get to verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image. It's almost as if God is kind of pushing pause here saying, look, I'm going to be intimately involved in the creation of humankind. I'm going to blow my, my, my breath of life into their lungs and allow them to breathe and allow them to live because I willed it. It's almost like this idea of an inventor, right? Think about this in terms of like an inventor who has a patent on a, a creation, on invention. And so he, he buys a warehouse, he, he has uh, his workers who are there, and there's this assembly line as his invention is being created over and over again. And it's, it's his design, it's his work, and he gets to a special a special uh, a product, and he realizes, you know what, I'm gonna push pause, I wanna be involved in this. And so he pulls out his tools, and even though he's done it before, he creates humankind. This is what God does in a very intimate and very person, close, uh, personal way. And we see what God's, God's work here. Let's keep going here, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you have a pen or pencil highlighter, I encourage you to underline that word dominion. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heaven and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given, given you, humankind, every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. There's a lot going on here. And as we consider the creation narrative, we see this, 
this theme that the human, human life is, is held in regard above all of other creation. There, there's a sense that humankind is special, it is unique, and I had you underline that word dominion in verse 28 because it's important that we understand that not only human life is valued at a higher level, but humankind was invited into a special uh, co-ruling relationship over creation. And this is what this word dominion means. We don't use this word very often, but it is this unique calling, this role that we as humankind have with, with God, creator God, over creation. And it's something that's special and unique because we actually reflect God ourselves in our, our image. In fact, the theological term for this is the imago Dei, the image of God. We have the imago Dei. And this is unique to any other aspect of creation. This is what humanity is. And so you and I and our neighbors and our good friends and our worst enemies, we all bear God's image. And that is, that is unique and that makes human life very special and very important. And so we, we know that, we, we understand this a little bit when it, we think about our relationships because when when something bad happens to us as people, God feels that. It's almost like it's, it's happening to God himself. God feels this in a unique way. And we know this as parents. And so those of you guys who, who are parents and have had little kids come home and say, say, hey, I had a really bad day. We feel that as parents. Uh, hey, I, I, I got bullied today at school. Someone called me this name. Man, that hurts. That hurts me as a dad to hear that. And in fact, it may even cause a reaction in, in, in me where I, I go the next day to school and have a confrontation with somebody because, hey, that's my kid. They, were, they bear my image. They're part of my family. And so God feels the same way when somebody uh, offends humankind, when somebody takes another life. He feels that deeply. We see this in the first murder recorded in the Bible, Genesis 4, 8 through 10. If you turn your Bible over a few pages, you see the story of Cain and Abel. And in verse 8, in chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God has such a unique and special relationship with, with human life that, that Abel's own blood cries out to God, the creator God, from the ground. He feels this deeply. God feels and cares about these things deeply, and he has a dynamic relationship with human life. And this is unlike any other kind of creation, right? So we don't see this kind of response from God to, well, you know, when animals die or when plants die. It's, it's, it's part of kind of the cycle of life. And I, I know this in my own life because, um, you know, look, look, dogs are great. Okay, if you have a pet, take care of your pets, love your pets. It's, it's great to have um, all kinds of pets. My wife and I have been married 17 years. We've had four dogs in our, our kind of marriage. And so we're dog people. But th there's a difference, right? Because if, if my dog gets hurt, um, usually there's this conversation between me and the vet, and we're kind of standing there at the, the doorway of the medical office or whatever, and nodding my head and listening to what happens. And at the end, I say, well, how much is it going to cost? right? I don't do that with my kids. Even like Wesley, my fourth kid, I mean, he's the fourth one, right? I got three other ones. I don't kind of stand at the door and say, 
Cool, all right, so, but like, how, how much is this gonna be? Because that's really important to our plans moving forward. No, so with our dogs, with our dog, we, we've always had a $1,000 limit. I know that's kind of controversial. Maybe your limit's higher for your pets. Maybe that makes me a bad pet owner. But 1000 bucks, I don't have that in place for my kids, right? Like, for our friends, for my parents, human life is worth more. There's an aspect that we, we just know this intrinsically, but when it comes down to brass tacks, we know that I'm not going to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars because it's a dog. And we love our pets, but there's a difference. And, and we know this in, in our heart. Our kids bear our image. God feels the same way about us. And that's the first point. Number two that I want you to understand is this. We value human life by loving our neighbor. We value human life by loving our neighbor. This is an implication of our understanding that, that life has value. Um, in the, the Ten Commandments, Commandments 1 through, 4, uh, 1 through 4 really have to do with honoring God and seeing our posture of worship towards Him. Uh, uh, commandments 5 through 10 really have to do with how we interact with the people around us. How do we now live in, in, in light of this truth that we love and honor God? And so when we consider the, the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, it really has to do with do you love your neighbor? Do you love your neighbor? And C.S. Lewis has this amazing quote, and we're just going to read it in just a minute, but he really challenges us to understand, hey, do you feel the weight of your neighbor's glory? Do you, do you feel the weight of the person's glory next to you? Uh, and, and I want to just read it for us. Here. So let's go through this. It's a bit of a long quote, but we'll get through it. It may be possible, Lewis says, for each to think too much of his own personal glory, potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should, lay, should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or another of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Do you feel the weight of your neighbor's glory? When you, when you interact with people in your own home, do you realize that your siblings, do you realize that your kids will, will live forever? They're eternal beings. When you go grocery store shopping and you see that cashier, that person will, will exist forever in one way or another. Do we feel that weight when we interact with people? And, and so much of keeping the sixth commandment and valuing human life is a proper understanding that we will exist forever for all time, either, either with God or without him. And when we don't understand this, and when we forget this, oftentimes things start to go wrong. There's a New York Times article this past week, very sad. There's a woman on a train, 
in Philadelphia. Maybe you saw the article. And she was in trouble and no one stepped up. Here's what the article says. Authorities reported a woman was being raped while on a train near Philadelphia on Wednesday night. Writers watched, failed to intervene, and did not call 911. Several passengers were in the train car. Investigators were still working to determine the exact number, although there was enough that collectively they could have gotten together and done something. Church, we see the lives of our, our neighbors, our community, as, as having value. And if so, that ought to cause us to act on their behalf. That ought to cause us to, to have some love and care for those around us, where that kind of thing doesn't, never happens. That should never happen, where, where a person is hurt that way. And so listen, this is a timely word. I, I realize we have lots of disagreements. There's lots of things for us to be, uh, you know, to, ha- to not have unity over. And oftentimes, sometimes it's easy for us to just concentrate on those things over and over again. And so we, we have disagreements about who we voted for or masks or, or vaccinations or, or we, we have disagreements about race relations in America. There's lots of things to disagree about. I agree. But when you scrape all those labels aside, we are still eternal souls. We have, we have this, this human life that is, is worth seeing in one another and understanding that, look, God created every single one of us in his image to glorify him. And it's intentional that God, through scripture, reminds us of this over and over again. We need this reminding because it's, it's hard. It doesn't come natural to us to care for those who are different than us. And in fact, in the New Testament, there are, there are over 40 one another's, uh, these commands that, that call us to, to love and care and serve one another. And so, yeah, it's love one another, serve one another, consider other, others' needs before your own, forgive one another. These are these reminders that, that God gives us all throughout the New Testament that we ought to see people's value over and over again. Uh, here's one that maybe you remember, greet one another. Greet one another. And I, I realize that greeting is kind of weird nowadays, right? It's hard to know kind of in this day and age how to greet someone, right? Is it like the, the bow or like the fist bump or, you know, high five from afar? Like, in fact, actually last week at church, I saw somebody who clearly like they went out of their way to, to fist bump someone and that the other person just pushed right through and just grabbed their fist and shook it anyway, right? So it's like, I don't even know what, what's happening right now. Like, it's hard. It's awkward, it's awkward to greet one another right now, but I, I just want to encourage you, Foothill. When it is no longer awkward, when, when, when people have the sense of, hey, this is a little bit more normal, I, I want to encourage us as a church to go out of our way and greet people who are different than us. That we would greet one another in love in a way that says, I see that you have value, even though you look differently than me. Even though your life is completely different than me, maybe you're younger than me, you're older than me, or you have a different skin color than me, all all these changes and and differences that we oftentimes focus so much on, in the church, it shouldn't be that way. We should see things differently, and when we love our neighbor, the world ought to see that and be changed by it. And so God has to help us adopt that mindset because it's not natural for us. God says, Look, people have value not because they're talented or strong or gifted. People have value because they are made in my image. As we wrap this up, I want to end with point three and the words of Jesus Christ. Go to Matthew 5. If you have your Bibles, we'll end here. Matthew 5 and point number three. 
is this. We value human life because Jesus calls us to reconciliation. We value human life because Jesus calls us to reconciliation. Jesus is gentle. We know this, but he also has this way of raising the bar, raising the standard. And so if you read Matthew 5, verse 21, which we will right now, you will see that, that Jesus makes kind of an addition here in verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus says it's not enough to not murder people. That's no longer the bar. It's not enough to simply not take someone's life unjustly. There's more to it. He says, look, if you're angry, if you're hateful, if you're spiteful, you're guilty of the same thing. And so this is where uh, my my, my own kind of like self-righteousness starts to melt away because it's like, look, I I haven't done anything that's close to murder, but wow, I, I, I certainly have been angry at people before. I certainly have been hateful at people before. I've certainly allowed, and we all know how this feels, when you allow that seed of of spitefulness and anger and hatred to kind of sit in your heart for way longer than it should, and you don't ask God to take it away, you just sit with it, and it becomes this pet that you kind of like take around with you, and you feed it, and you water it, and you're like, what am I doing? I'm just hating this person. Jesus says that's just as bad as if, if you murdered them. It's the same thing, and you will be liable to judgment if that is you, if that's something that you've done. And so we realize that, wow, we're all guilty. We're now all guilty of the sixth commandment. We all need, need help in this area. In verse 25, it's important to understand in Matthew 5 that reconciliation is the goal. Jesus says, be reconciled to your brother. Even if it means you, you, you walked all the way to this, this place where you're gonna put your, your offer, offering down your alt, at the altar. And if you remember that somebody at home, like, hey, they have a problem with me. I, I gotta make that right. And so leave your offering there and, and take care of that. This is the, the, the degree of importance that Jesus says reconciliation between one another is. And Jesus has this way of kind of redefining terms. He does this all the time. He says, hey, you wanna be great? Yeah, I wanna be great. Well, then you have to serve people. Oh, that's not what I had in mind. Hey, you, you think it's enough to not murder someone? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you can't even be angry at them. Oh, that's a lot harder. And as we consider our own culpability, our own um, guilt in this, we are all guilty of this unless we put our hope in the gospel. Unless we put our, our hope in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and his work on the cross for us. There is hope in the gospel for us not to only be reconciled to one another, but reconciled to Jesus Christ. And we see that there is hope for, for murderers. In fact, if you go throughout the Bible, you can see this very clearly. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Saul, who becomes Paul, was a murderer. Saul would stand Uh, in approval of the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian church. And people would lay cloaks down at his feet because he oversaw that that, that event, that activity. And and Jesus got a hold of Saul. He said, I'm gonna change your name to Paul. I'm gonna give you a new purpose. I'm gonna give you a new life. You're gonna plant churches. 
You're gonna do new things because of the hope that I'm gonna give you. Yes, even you, Paul, a murderer. We see this in King David, the greatest king of Israel. King David was a murderer, an adulterer. He, he slept with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, and instead of taking care of it the right way, he takes Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband, to the front lines of, of battle. He, he's one of his generals, and he, he murders Uriah. And, and yet in the Psalms, we see David contrite and broken over his sin and how God redeemed and reconciled even King David, a murderer, to himself. The writer of Exodus 20, Moses, He has some history with this as well, right? So Moses, when he was in Egypt, he got involved in the scuffle and he, out of sin, he he killed another man because it's considered murder. And so he's writing down these 10 commandments. I kind of imagine it, Mount Sinai. He's sitting there with God and it's like, hey, uh, commandment number six, you shall not murder, Moses, (laughs) right? Like there's a sense of, oh, this is kind of awkward, but even Moses, we're still benefiting from his leadership and his writing today. We see that God used Moses in great ways. My point being is that God can redeem anyone. God can reconcile anyone to himself, even murderers, which is amazing. And so as we consider our part in this, we realize that, that God has work to do in our hearts. God says, you shall not murder. And Jesus says, don't even be angry with your brother. Don't even be angry with those around you. Do, you. do you feel the weight of your neighbor's glory? Do you see everyone as sacred around you? Have you been reconciled to your neighbor and to Jesus Christ? As we consider Jesus and his work on the cross for us, so much of his ministry and, and what he represented was life. Jesus was the Lord of life. He was the way, the truth, and the life. He's the bread of life. This is what Jesus stood for, a new life so that we can be reconciled to the Father because of his work on the cross. But to eat from the bread of life, it had to be broken first. And this was his work for us on the cross. Jesus, who was, who was sinless, he, was, he, he wasn't guilty of murder in any way. And he allowed himself to be killed for our, for our behalf, on our behalf. So let's bow our heads. Let's prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper this morning as we eat from that broken bread, a bread of life. God, we thank you for this, this time this morning. We ask that as we consider our own place in this commandment, Lord, I, I pray that, God, I pray that our self-righteousness would melt away, that we see our, our anger our hatefulness, and we realize that, Lord, you are, you are capable uh, of, of healing anyone, of reconciling anyone to yourself, yet, yes, even murderers, even those who have murdered in our hearts. And so, Lord, would you convict us of sin, and yet would you give us hope for the future? God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who paid the price for us, who never hurt anybody, who never murdered anyone with by his hands or his heart or his words. And yet, Lord, we didn't deserve it. And here we are. So God, help us with this truth this morning. We love you and praise in your name. Amen. Amen.